adapted to your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and podcast with myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And so we are continuing in the chaos that is David, Saul, and Jonathan's lives uh, up to this point in 1 Samuel. And um, the opening chapter you had to read this week, it kind of escalated quite a bit. This is a uh, weird <laughs> story. It just is really strange. I hope you read it and you were like, this story is strange. And if you didn't, maybe like think about the critical thinking you're employing as you read. We need to read with critical thinking skills. And if you read it that way, you're going to be like, this story is strange. Yeah. So like, yeah, Jonathan finds out his dad's wanting to kill David. David's winning some battles, but he's playing the liar still for Saul, but Saul tries to kill him there. Then eventually sends some hitmen to kill David, but David sneaks out and his wife <clears throat> talks to the guards and she kind of makes up a bit of a lie to deceive him. So she doesn't seem so culpable in sneaking David out. David hides with Samuel. But then like, I think it's that much crazier where like these hitmen and eventually Saul himself run into prophets, but they start prophesying. And then Saul's finally, by the end of this chapter, just naked on the ground prophesying. <laughs> like, it's like, what just happened in this chapter? So um, I think we see some things here with, with Saul. We see him becoming progressively more and more alienated from his family. You know, David now has allies in his son, Jonathan, and his daughter, Michael. Um, he loses any kind of rational thought. And then we just see him totally weak at the end totally in shame. Nakedness is associated with shame in scripture. And so we're just seeing him like fall deeper and deeper and deeper out of this role that he's grasping for. And yet in David, we see David continuing to kind of trust in God and be faithful. And I think it's cool, even that he went to Samuel, he wanted to be close to the priest. He wanted to be close to probably like a form of his mentor, but he wanted to be close to God. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of like, Okay, like this is your king now, <laughs> Saul. Saul lying on the ground naked. Like this is um, just meant to to just be this downward spiral for Saul. Uh, yeah, that we're supposed to see. Yeah, so it's a weird story, but we do see again more and more clearly this contrast between Saul and David. And Sarah and I have both been resting through like the construction of some of these stories and whether they're supposed to like have parallels, whether there's supposed to be a chiasm in there. Um, and we, I mean. Even though we study this stuff and and, and are podcasting it, like there's still places where we're like, I, I just don't see it, but I feel like there's something there, and, and maybe you guys can find uh, something there and send it to us. Feel free, but um, yeah, we we've sort of struggled to like totally, but but we feel like there's definitely hints that in the text that that there's some some repetitions, some parallels, uh, some that, patterns, that, that, yeah, that, that we're supposed to be picking up on. We just haven't. It won't change whether or not exactly we interpret it, but it may change like the one central thing that the author might be focused on. Yeah, like the on. overall theme of the book. Yeah. So uh, Jonathan uh, ends up warning David, uh, and uh, Jonathan has really shown himself to be David's like true BFF here, right? Yeah, um, I mean, he's torn between his father and his best friend. He's the rightful heir to the throne, but he steps out of this opportunity he has to really be like the main character of his own story. And instead, he steps away from that and would rather play a smaller part in God's story. He knows he's going to lose the throne and David's going to get it. And so I just, I don't know, I think the humility we see in Jonathan and his willingness to lay down any kind of opportunities for maybe even just like staying alive, but success and power and influence when he's probably a good guy and would be a great king. Yeah. He still lays it aside. And you, and you get a few moments in some of these stories where it's like, well, is lying okay? Because like it got Jonathan and David out of a jam a few times. And um, is, is that allowable? We saw, we had that question with the midwives back in, in Exodus. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's, it's a tough, like, clear one-liner to be like lying is never okay because we see it but we also don't see god 
condone it or instruct them to lie. Uh, but we do see sort of the, the, the saving of life in sort of uh, some of these situations. Um, and, and it's something to wrestle through, to grasp through. It's, I don't think that answer to that question, is lying okay, is always the cleanest answer, uh, particularly when there's um, outside powers and, and death and some of these and other evil, things. Yeah, yeah. evil uh, encroaching in the world. Yeah. And then uh, David and Holy Bread. So if you remember from one of Jesus's teachings in Matthew, he references this whole story uh, about Sabbath, but um, that the priest is confronted with David. He has to decide, do I give him this, the showbread, this consecrated bread, or um, do, uh, do I keep it holy and separate? And um, I, I think the, the priest interprets the, according to Jesus interprets the law correctly here of he, he gives David and his men something to eat. He, he provides mm-hmm. sustenance and life. Like that's what God ultimately is after. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think it's sort of the, the question on the table that, that the priest answers uh, to, to care for David here. Yeah. And in the process, David gets Goliath's sword. Uh, so yeah, he levels up with a uh, extra XPs on the sword there, and, uh, and and I think it's an interesting question of of all right, he's got a sword now. He's he's not only a sword, but the sword that he last used to chop off the head of Goliath. That's right. Um, what will David do with the sword? And so uh, he flees uh, right away, uh, but he flees to the Philistines, which is an interesting uh, location after he just circumcised through 200 of them um, and likely killed all 200 of those people. Uh, and I don't know if David... With the sword of their hometown giant. <laughs> yeah. Like... Yeah. And I don't know if David thinks like maybe the enemy of my enemy is my friend and like I, we're, I'm fighting Saul. They're probably fighting Saul. So it's like maybe maybe I can go there and they won't know who I am and we can work against Saul together. But um, he gets found out and decides to lie again, pretend he's a little bit crazy, to which the king of the town's like, I have enough crazy here already. Uh, we don't need you here. And so, uh, yeah, his yeah. is lying got him out of a bind. So, But we even I think we see the provision of God in this, too, because, I mean, I don't think typically the Philistines, I mean, he's done a lot of bad things to them. So they would not withhold judgment from him, even if he did act like a crazy person. And so uh, there's something about God's preservation of David, even in this situation, he still should not have survived that. Yeah. And he ends up in the cave of Adullam. Yeah. Um, This is so cool, you guys. Did you read about his first army? It was, and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became commander over them. His first army was a bunch of ragamuffins. It's so awesome. Yeah. Yeah. David is being the kind of king that I think he's designed, God's designed kings to actually be uh, for, for God's people. Uh, and David convinces his family to flee from Bethlehem. Probably a good idea. It's all probably go after them. Uh, and Saul is just mad. He's mad that people, um, uh, for not knowing more about his son, but it's like, come on, you're, you're his dad. You should know these things. And then, uh, word gets to Saul that, uh, David had interacted with this, that priest in, uh, Ahimelech. And so Ahimelech's sort of like, all right, um, he's your son-in-law. Uh, so why would I assume he was out to do evil, uh, mm-hmm. which just makes all mad. And then he has his, his sort of watchdog Doeg, uh, kill the priest and Doeg just goes that much farther and kills like basically everything in town. Um, and one priest gets away with David. And so it's such a contrasting, like David, right. David's story of life and, and Saul's story of death with this priest. Uh, yeah. Um, so Saul, we have sitting under a tree with his spear and I just, I was like, why is, why do they keep talking about his spear? So I looked it up. Um, 
And the idea of a spear is repeated a bunch of times in this book, and it's really only associated with Saul. Um, and I'm looking through the uses of it, it always talks about this idea to bring judgment by your own strength or by your own hand. Saul is constantly using his spear to perform unjust actions, like throwing it at David or holding it or running after someone. Um, but then David says earlier on, like, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. And so we see this idea of Saul trying to wield some sort of power. Um that that he can control on his own, but David yeah. is trusting in the hand and the work of the Lord. Yeah, there's always hints like that, and they're always fascinating. Like at one point, Saul has 700 men right at the beginning, the sort of Benjaminites that he had with him, and then his army moves to 600. And at some point, you're sort of like, wait a minute, six six is a very different number than seven, and six usually is a figure of like man centeredness or man doing it on his own or man sinfulness. And so, um, even that move in the storytelling should be like, okay. Why has he only got 600? Now we will run into that with David too, but I think it was very intentional with the storytelling of Saul. Yeah. So David uh, finds out that the city's food rations are being uh, attacked and the Philistines are uh, cutting off the food for the city. And so uh, David decides um, to, to attack the city. He works with the priest. I don't know whether they're using the, the Tumim and Urim from the ephod, but they, they sort of decide that they're going to attack the city. Um, and, uh, and David saves... Uh, David saves th- these people. Like David uses his sword for caring for an injustice yes. against people who are losing out on food. And so it's the right use of, of probably fighting. And and so, um, yeah, I just think it's so fascinating. Yeah. Um, but what a lesson in leadership. David literally fights for these people to have food and provision. And not long after that, they, they basically want to turn him into Saul. And so, right. But we um, do see this fulfillment again of Samuel's word or God's words to Samuel. God looks at the heart instead of the outer appearance. And we see him doing that. Yep. And Saul continues to pursue David. They just cannot ever seem to catch him. Uh, and uh, ultimately Saul gets distracted by another attacking of the Philistines somewhere else, which hey, it's probably a good thing for Saul to take care of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and just pause for a second. Don't miss all the wilderness connections in here. We had, we saw Israel in the wilderness. David is in the wilderness. Jesus was in the wilderness. It's a time of testing, but really a time of preparation and a time of purifying. So um, we all experience wilderness times or wilderness places, maybe not literally, but figuratively in our spiritual lives and, and embrace it um, and wait for God to be preparing you for whatever is coming next. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate uh, the slowness of David's rise to the throne. Uh, because I think sometimes when it's like, uh, um, sometimes you're young and you're brash and you're like, I'm ready for it. I'm ready to do this. I'm ready to take this on. But um, David learned to serve. David learned to be humble. David learned to, to do all of these things um, prior to ever taking the throne. And I think that set him up well. I mean, eventually he's going to struggle uh, and still have sin. But um, I think sometimes it's a good lesson that, 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 um, you may feel ready. Like he, he was anointed. Samuel confirmed it. Saul's clearly a terrible king at this point. David could have taken the throne, but he's, he, he kind of plays it slow and trusts in God with the timing. Mm-hmm. New Testament. All right. We just had the Mount of Transfiguration and then Jesus comes down and uh, we find out that these disciples aren't able to heal this boy. And um, Jesus has a, a pretty stern reaction to, to their lack of faith or uh, something. And I, I don't know if, um, uh, exactly 
why Jesus is so strong here. I do yeah. think there might be some tie-in with the, the golden calf story, which would have been the very thing that happened to Moses coming down from the mountain and finding like some sort of idolatry that they were practicing. Maybe the maybe disciples' lack of faith had some tie-in tie to idolatry. I just don't know. Uh, but there's, there's definitely some misapplied faith. Maybe they're trying to use tactics or something to heal, and it's not about faith in God and their healing. Who knows? Yeah. It's, I mean, I read this and I will be honest, like sometimes I get a little frustrated and I'm like, well, God, like you were the source of faith. And so give me more faith. Like, right. I don't know how to, uh, I would, I would probably be frustrated in that moment too. Like I'm trying to do it. I'm trying to believe it. I can't like right. how my unbelief. Yeah. Like, and it seems like both the disciples and this man, like, have faith. Like, the disciples mm-hmm. think that the healing can happen. So, it's it's tough to kind of know. Maybe there's a little more context that we just don't know. Yeah. It is what it is. Yeah. Uh, Jesus, again, foretells his death. He's, he's back in Galilee. So, this is sort of hometown. And he makes the public declaration that he made way back up in Caesarea Philippi. Um, and, um, yeah, he knows that going to Jerusalem, he's going to get killed, but he will be back on the third day to which most of them are like, we don't understand what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, and I think so. it's cool that Matthew includes this in here because he's writing this from a place of finally understanding it. The disciples didn't get it then, but he gets it now. And so he's connecting it to passages like Daniel and Isaiah and stuff like that. Yeah. And then a conversation about taxes. Um, so there would have been all sorts of taxes that Israel had at the time, Roman and, and Herod as one of those taxes. He, he built all of his stuff, but he taxes people for it. Um, and Peter doesn't even ask Jesus whether they pay the tax. He's just like, uh, yeah. Yes. Um, but yes. then then they go back and then he goes back and has a conversation with Jesus about it. And I, I do wonder if Jesus is actually teaching like, like, look, is it really lawful for Herod to, to take this tax? And I think from sort of the answer is, is generally like, no, like you can tax foreigners, but you don't tax your brother and sister. Um, but uh, Jesus still hasn't paid a tax. But I, I'm curious, the the sort of weird miracleness of this fish in the sea. Like, the sea gets referenced, but but a good number of those times are referenced in the sea. Like, sea is a, a symbol for judgment. This is the abyss. This is where judgment comes from, is in water. And, and so, um, I, I do wonder if if he tells Peter, like, go Go get a go get a coin from the place of judgment, and and you're a fisherman. You can get out of a fish, but get a coin out of the place of seat of judgment, and pay Herod with that. Don't don't like yes. Go ahead, like we're we're go ahead and pay it, even though it may not be lawful. But pay it in a way that that showcases like the source of the coin, um, that that it's not okay. Like point out the injustice of the tax. And I think it's super interesting. Yeah, and I think there's something too to be said about. Like you choose your battles. Jesus could have fought this here, but instead he chose to submit and not fight it. And so uh, just because we don't agree with every single thing in the world around us, it doesn't mean we should, you know, like post a rant about it or boycott something on Facebook. And we do find out a little bit more probably about the disciples' age, that Peter and Jesus are the only ones that pay this tax, not the rest of the disciples. So likely they're all under 18, but nah, that is what it is. Then a conversation about who is the greatest. Um, and, and Jesus will teach on humility. And, and I think he, he does it by using a, a child as an object lesson in some ways. Like children, like, look, they – they don't bring anything to the table. They don't really work or anything like that. They don't uh, rely on others for sustenance. I mean, they have to rely on others for sustenance. Like this is how we approach God: empty hands, trusting in God for for life, for food, for for all the things that God provides. And um, it is important to note that child and little ones are also ways for rabbis to refer to the disciples. So I think Jesus is playing on that double entendre throughout this teaching here, especially when he says little ones over and over and over. Um, and, and I wonder if this whole teaching at least through verse 10, 
um, is all really tied in together uh, as if Jesus was saying like, you want to think about the greatest, like quit thinking that way because my kingdom is about the least. Like we, we, when, when you come to me, you come with nothing like a child, like I have everything, you have nothing. You got to trust in me to provide and mm-hmm. I bring provision. And, and then he sort of makes a transition and saying like others will come like children this way and you are to receive them. Don't make it hard on them. Don't, 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 don't. If you do like that's, that's bad news for you. Like it's like you should have a millstone thrown around your neck and thrown into the abyss. Like, don't make it hard for people to enter the kingdom of heaven. Like if that's what they're desiring to do, uh, because hard times, temptations, all the things like they're coming, but don't make it worse for them. Don't add to the temptation. Don't, don't make your sin making that temptation worse. And, and, and that's how serious Jesus wants us to take sin that, that not only do we cause it for others, but like we should deal with our own sin too. The stakes are that high. Eternal life is at hand. So like we, we need to deal with our own sin, both internally and communally um, a, as a people. So, so be careful how you treat others because God knows how you treat your, his followers. Like he, he knows that they, that's the sort of statement around angels there. And I think it gets into this whole section of, of interacting with each other um, and, and how to uh, deal with sin as a communal piece. Yeah. I think it's important for us to remember, and we've talked about this before that um, your sin, no matter how private it is, affects those around you, no matter what. And so, yeah, we have to get right in our hearts. We have to ask God to reveal our sin to us so we can repent, um, because otherwise it will impact the family. This is kind of like the family business. How do we interact? How do we care for others? And yeah. a big piece of it is taking care of our own sin. Yeah. I mean, this this goes back to even the Israelites and and like when they found out that like one of the people in their, their community was, was sinning, like it affected other things that were happening usually in the community and then they had to identify it. And so um, I think that happens in the church too. It's like, look, like if someone in the community has got some personal sin, like it tends to still affect the community. Yeah. And also, you know, I mean, be, be prayerful in what you do. Like don't be the Christian who drives another Christian from the faith because of your behavior or opinions. Yeah. Yeah. And so we get a parable of the lost sheep, which feels like it has some Luke 15 overlaps, but I I think the objects are are a little Mm -hmm. different. Um, as if Jesus is uh, speaking of God's pursuit um, of, of even uh, wayward believers. It almost feels like this, this is a conversation about insiders, not finding outsiders, but, but insiders who have gotten a little lost that we would work um, to, to seek and, and to bring back a, a wayward believer. Yeah. And then conversations uh, about brothers sinning against you um, and, and, um, what happens when, when we see sin, when we need to call out sin, there's sort of a, a, a teaching and steps that are certainly played out here. But I, I think the general kind of feel is for Jesus to teach, like, like, look, like when dealing with conflict, don't get more people involved than you need to like, keep it as a small and really as immediate as you can. Like that is the rightful way to start moving forward mm-hmm. in conflict. Like as soon as you bring other people in who probably have no business in the situation, that's when things go really poorly. Um, I mean, I've, I've seen that happen in my life. And so um, be as small and immediate as you can. And, and then he says, treat, treat him like a Gentile and tax collector, which I'm curious because up to now, I mean, Matthew, who's writing this as a tax collector, and we've seen Jesus sit down and have meals and treat the Gentiles and tax collectors quite well. So yeah. what does it really mean? Tara, what do you think it means for, for us to treat a Gentile, treat others as a Gentile and tax collector? I think you understand them as somebody who doesn't know the Lord or who isn't saved. You treat them as an outsider and someone who you want to win over with the love of Christ and through sharing the gospel yep. with them. It doesn't mean you reject them. It doesn't mean you like shun them or refuse to talk to them or, you know, publish an open letter to them about how awful they are. But 
you offer them the love of Christ and hoping that they will be brought back into repentance. Yep. Yeah, I think that repentance piece is, is pretty key. Yeah. And people aren't usually bullied into repentance, you know? Well, well I mean, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Yeah. I think it should be our kindness that leads others to repentance. Um, and then we get the parable of the unforgiving servant. So Peter, I think, is sort of like, mm, okay, but about forgiving brothers, like how far? Even more ironic, his brother's right there. Uh, do I just forgive him seven times? Uh, because, like, I mean, that seems like a good complete number. Uh, well, and like, I think Jewish Judaism allowed for three yeah. times of forgiveness, right? And so you were really f- generous if you forgave three times. So Peter's like, hey, look at me, I'll forgive seven yeah. times. And seven seems even more complete than three. Uh, <clears throat> and like, then Jesus is like, we, how about we, 70 times seven? And if you uh, really remember back to some of your Old Testament days, that number of 70 times seven really only occurs one time in scripture. Uh, it's the story of Lamech uh, in, in Genesis four. And and Lamech is sort of like the fruition of evil, of mm-hmm. Cain's evil line. Like, and there's all sorts of pieces of that. Like he lives to 777 years, like all these kind of things. Like, and Cain's punishment for his sin was only seven times. Like, Lamex is like mine because of my sinfulness. And like, I am the culmination of evil and should be 70 times seven. Um, and I think Peter would hear this as like, look, Peter, Jesus is saying to Peter, like, you're going to have to outforgive evil. Like, if Lamech is advanced 70 times seven, well, Peter, that's how many times you're going to need to forgive mm-hmm. your brother. Like, you, there's no end. Like, as far long as evil will go, you need to go further with forgiveness. And then Jesus teaches a parable uh, about this guy who owned three lifetimes worth of salary uh, in debt. Um, and so it, that that's that much more surprising that the master would be willing to forgive just the mountains yeah. of debt. Like most people hearing this would say that you're crazy. Like this is like millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars that this guy has accrued in debt. And, and, and the master says, I'm willing to forgive you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he's not willing to forgive others. And it becomes a, an object lesson here uh, that, um, and, and it's curious, verse 34, because the way the, the adverbs, or not the adverbs, the pronouns are used, like <clears throat> the question is, is he, does he have to deal with his three lifetimes of debt? Or is he dealing with the debt of this person he refuses to forgive their debt of? And I think the last line is, it's really about that. It's really tying the heart of, the practice of forgiveness as a believer to understanding God's forgiveness and what he did in heaven. And um, I think Jesus is constantly bringing those two together going like, look, if you function in a life out of unforgiveness, you don't understand what God has done for you. And, right. And um, really trying to, to weave those two together. Like my people will be forgiving people because of like my life is about forgiving you mm-hmm. on the cross. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. When we understand the forgiveness shown to us by God through Christ, we're going to be really much quicker to forgive others as well. Um, and I think I, just as we're talking right now, I was thinking about this idea of, of economy and how we always see money and fines or debts or profits as limited. But here we have this comparison to the forgiveness of God, uh, which is, that economy is unending. That economy is limitless um, and infinite. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just, and, and you know, I think you're supposed to feel like this man's inability to ever pay his debt. Like <clears throat> he can't pay his own debt. Three lifetimes worth of money. There's no chance. Like he, there's no amount of work that he's going to be able to do. There's no, so like he is in this, strapped position of I cannot do this and it's only by the graciousness of my master will I ever be forgiven instead yeah and so yeah what a, what a teaching of the gospel yeah <clears throat> and then we get teaching on divorce this feels like a 
bit of a shift, though we're going to hear about children again. So it's kind of hard to go like, is Jesus wrapped up his teaching? Is this a new teaching? Is it so? Um, I just, I think it's like, I mentioned this to Chris, to me, it seems like a, a reiteration or a repeating a lot of the Sermon on the Mount. Yep. We get some similar phrases. We have conversations about divorce and about forgiveness and about um, how we care for the weak anyway. Yeah. And this is where one of the main areas where Jesus uh, disagrees with uh, um Hillel, uh, one of the rabbinic world of thought, uh, he tends to often uh, kind of fall in a similar camp to uh, Hillel versus uh, Shammai, which is the other big rabbinic camp. But on this one, he goes the full opposite direction. And I think the reason why is because like... um, uh, the, in the, particularly the Hillel world, you could divorce women for anything. Like she burnt your toast, you can divorce her. And, and they would interpret uh, one of the lines from the Old Testament to be like, look, if she does anything I find offensive, I can leave her. And, and what it created was a quick and easy divorce culture where particularly women in the time, cultural norms at the time, would be left destitute. And, and being able to, to be taken advantage of and marginalized and all these sort of things. Like you're, you're throwing a woman out on the street basically uh, when you divorce her and, and Jesus is like, you, you guys are not understanding what marriage is really designed to be. Like God designed us to be one flesh. God, what God joined together should not be separated by any man. And the only reason why we have divorce is because of sin, not because of design and marriage. And so mm-hmm. uh, you don't understand what marriage really is. And they, I don't think they still understand it. It's really Paul that, that unpacks that the most for us in Ephesians. Uh, but in a patriarchal culture, like, yes, like this was shocking to them to be like, Oh, like you want us to treat women like regular human beings that are deserving of dignity and care and stuff like that. And at some point, the disciples are like, that sounds really hard. (laughs) And yeah. And I think that go ahead. Yeah. And so I, I do think like, this is a, a drive towards, all right, what is the purpose of, of marriage and therefore help us understand what the purpose of divorce is. But yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think it was creative or like interesting of Matthew to include that the statement from the disciples, like, Oh, well then I guess it's better not to get married. And what they're really saying is like, we'd rather not get married than have to do something hard, like commit to marriage for life. And what they are missing is the ultimate purpose of marriage. Like Chris talked about Paul unpacking, but they are missing the beauty of, um, a marriage is a covenant because of God has covenanted to his people yeah. and the, and the gospel story that tells. And they're basically like, yeah. And we know that like, there's a real honor for those who have chosen a single life, but these disciples aren't saying like, I want the honor of being single. They're like, ah, marriage sounds hard. I don't want to commit to yeah. somebody. Yeah. Um, I think they look at like, all right, I'm supposed to be one flesh with someone else. that's a sinner for the rest of my life. I don't know if I want to say no, that. Want to that. <laughs> and they're missing out on an invitation to be part of God's right. kingdom story in it. And, but we will see Paul eventually be like, look, like, yes, if you commit to marriage, there are things you commit to that um, if you were single, you aren't, don't have the responsibilities for. And so, um, yeah, yeah, I don't think that's where they, these disciples were going. But for all of our single listeners, like there is a – sometimes the church and Christianity has presented marriage as the end-all be-all of where you've arrived in life. And, and I am not sold That's scripture. Wrong. Scripture ends up in there at all. Um, and, and so, no, it's I, kind of a product of the reformation, but like we won't get there today, but it is really fascinating how the reformation yes, influenced certainly. our views on marriage. Yep. Uh, so and then the last section, let the children come to me. Uh, and this feels like maybe a wrap up of the previous section or, or maybe because of the sort of double entendre around children and little ones. Uh, maybe the disciples are like, yeah, we got that Jesus. You were talking about us. And then this child comes up again and they're like, go away, kid. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. I'm talking about children too. Like children are 
considered nothing in, in a lot of culture at this time. And so it's like, no, no, no. We care for children too. That is part of what we do as well. Don't send them away. Uh, you're doing the very thing I told you not to do. Uh, and, and so, yeah. Yeah. I was, as I was thinking about this and maybe this is too literal of an interpretation, but, um, I was convicted about my own attitude and approach towards children, especially in our church community. You know, as a mom, I have a huge burden for my kids. I want them to be cared for. I want them to be pointed to Jesus. But it often seems that people don't want much more than a a short greeting with my kids. Um, And then I do the same thing to other children. and, And I I know that I personally prefer generally adults and adult conversation over children, but I think I am missing out on so much that God has and so much of what Jesus speaks when I resist discipleship opportunities with kids. I'm missing God's heart and value for them and opportunities for them to know the Lord. So uh, the big is like, if you don't like kids, you probably got to check your heart a little bit. Yep. No, it's great. Psalm 59. Psalm 59. God's laughing at his enemies. Um, Yeah. I like I like kind of the breakdown in this psalm. You know, David initially is praying for protection. Uh, he's not totally sure that God is going to deliver him, and he's scared. Um, and then David longs for his righteousness to be shown. He wants God to work, not only for David's preservation, but so the wicked will be cast down and that God's strength will be shown. And finally kind of ends with like David being like, you know what, I'm going to praise you. David's praise is not conditional on whether he's going to survive or not. And he is not so confident in God that that he thinks he's going to survive, but he, he doesn't bargain with God. He's not like, God, if you get me out of this tough place, I'll worship you forever. He just resolves to praise God no matter what. Yeah, yeah. All, all three of these psalms really tie into David's wilderness places mm-hmm. like the psalm the next psalm literally the subtitle is uh when he pretended to be insane before abimelech who drove him away and then he left um this sort of uh pretending to be crazy the the pretending to be um uh yeah and, and so um and, and what god what david highlights here is like look god gathers his oil followers to him and preserves like even their bones like god is mm. faithful to um his followers he he does not abandon them david's not abandoned just because he's on the run god is still with him yeah yeah and then psalm 142 yeah so i think we've talked about how lonely david is or i've yeah I mean, he's totally on his own in this, on the run. He's lost his best friend. He's lost his family. He's lost everything. He's on the run. And God is David's comfort. We are seeing this raw desperation that comes from being in the wilderness. David's only portion, his only comfort is God and God's presence alone. And I just love how he's stuck and hiding in this cave about to die. And he ends with, you will deal bountifully with me, God, which is so amazing and so encouraging. Yeah. Yeah, this is definitely um, the cave of Dulem prayer, and and I wonder if cave, he's looking around these cave walls that are like rock, and they are sanctuary, and they are protection and refuge for him at this moment, and being like, you know what, God, you are my refuge. Like, as much as this cave is a place to hold up, like, God, you are my real fortress. You are my real protected place. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, it's so good. Yeah. All right, next week. Yeah, so in the Old Testament, pay attention to the story about Abigail we're going to read. This is a moment of weakness for David, and it's really one of the first ones we see. So pay attention to what David's about to do and how God uses Abigail to bring him back into obedience. It's pretty cool. Um, and New Testament, Jesus cleansing the temple. I just encourage you to follow uh, the cross-references or you know, even the verses that Jesus quotes. What's happening in the temple? And where is it happening that is causing Jesus to be so upset? Yeah, it's really important to know. Uh, the the full context of the statement, my house will be a house of prayer. Um, what what comes before or after that statement? It's really good. Um, 
in, in the Old Testament. <clears throat> and then the Old Testament uh, for me, uh, yeah, David, David, when given chances, we're going to watch him make choices and whether he's going to choose mercy or death, vengeance or uh, compassion. Um, and it's important to watch him make those choices. Uh, and uh, where Saul would act one way, David seems to act a very different way. And then we head into New Testament. We get a lot of symbolism carried out through Matthew again. He's going to tell stories of vineyards. He's going to deal with stuff in the temple and um, really think through some of that symbolism. And who who is Jesus accusing? Is he accusing all of Israel? Is he accusing the leadership of Israel? Who, who's sort of the the targets of some of his scorn? Um, I think it's really important that we um, end, end up there. And hopefully you've seen that from some of the stuff in the podcast. I think sometimes we lump all the Jews into the category. But as we read in Acts, like there's Jews and Gentiles who are all coming to follow Jesus. And um, sometimes Jesus his language is really directed at the leadership of Israel more than, um, I think, uh, just all the Jewish people all together. But anyways, um, yeah, that's it for this week. So uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.